Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He's just published a book in 2022. Title of the book is An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zapruder Story. His name is Jacob Hornberger, and he's published many books about JFK and on other subjects as well. Um, some of his earlier works are The Kennedy Autopsy, one, and then The Kennedy Autopsy, two, which is LBJ's role in the assassination. He's also written Regime, Regime Change, the JFK assassination, as well as JFK's War with the National Security Establishment, Why Kennedy Was Assassinated. He wrote that with Douglas Horn. He's also written The CIA Terrorism and the Cold War, The Evil of the National Security State, as well as Economic Liberty and Constitution, The Tyranny of Gun Control, and My Passion for Liberty. And he operates the Future of Freedom Foundation. And you can see all of his work there in articles at the fff.org website. And I will put that in the show notes so people can see that. He's all, that uh, The first Future of Freedom Foundation has, has published two books by Jefferson Morley. And I've interviewed Jefferson on four occasions about four different subjects. And he's just uh, been in the news this week, actually, with new information about the JFK assassination. And this book is about one part of that very important event that happened in November 22nd, 1963. And again, the title of this book is An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zapruder Story, and the author's name is Jacob Hornberger. So Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here, William. Thanks for having me. Excellent. I'm glad. I'm delighted to have you on the show. So for people who may not have heard your name or some of the other books, can you kind of, I know you grew up in Texas. Can you talk about your background and what led you to write some of your earlier books on this subject leading up to this current book we're talking about, An Encounter with Evil? Yeah, let me first correct you on one thing on uh, Jefferson, I mean, on um, Doug Horn's book, JFK's War with the National Security Establishment, Why Kennedy Was Assassinated. That actually was written only by Doug Horn, not by me oh, also. Um, uh, minor but important correction. Sorry about that. Um, that's all right. I, I grew up in Laredo, Texas, which is um, on the Rio Grande. I grew up on a farm on the Rio Grande, as a matter of fact. And so I, I'm very familiar with border culture, which is very different from the rest of the United States. And I lived, oh gosh, more than 30 years of my life there on the border. And uh, I was a young lawyer. I practiced law with my father. Um, then um, after about 12 years, he had passed away by this time. And I got offered a job at the Foundation for Economic Education, which was a libertarian organization in New York. And I decided to leave the law practice. Uh, by this time, I had discovered the libertarian philosophy. It had become a passion and a hobby for me. And they offered me a job. And I thought, well, here's a chance to do my hobby. I, I love practicing law, but this was, this was just pure fun. And uh, so I took the job, moved to New York. And then two years later, I decided, you know what? I'm going to start my own educational foundation. And so I did that in 1989. It was the Future of Freedom Foundation. And our mission was to present a real principled and compromising case for the libertarian philosophy. Uh, 33 years of articles, speeches, conferences, and so forth. And we've never compromised any aspect of the libertarian philosophy, I'm really pleased to say. And in that process, we published many books, as, as you point out. And one of these books, or several of these books, dealt with the Kennedy assassination. And the reason that comes up within the context of the libertarian philosophy 
is that we at FFF advocate a limited government type of, of government. That was our founding system, a limited government republic. And that all changed with the advent of the national security state form of governmental structure after World War II. And that came with omnipotent powers, including the powers of assassination. And so we know that the CIA did and does assassinate foreign leaders. Um, but when I discovered what was going on with the Kennedy assassination, it, and that just—excuse <coughs> me—that discovery began with my watching Oliver Stone's movie of all things on JFK in around 1991. I decided to delve into that, and I extensively researched it, read all—well, not all the books, but many of the books—and then ultimately started writing my own books there at the Future of Freedom Foundation, which you mentioned that. The premiere one, our best all-time bestseller, is The Kennedy Autopsy. But this is my latest one. I, I consider this book, An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham is a Breeder story, the, the best piece of work I've done at FFF in our 33-year history. Wow. Congratulations. And can you, for people who may not know this element of the story, who was Abraham Zapruder? Why was he there November 22nd? What was his background like? Some people may not know the full story of what he was up to and what happened to the film he had. Yeah. Abraham Zabruder was a Dallas businessman. He had, he had immigrated from Russia. Uh, he's very, very, came from a very, very poor family. Uh, he went to New York with his, with his parents. Um, he met the woman that would become his wife. They, you know, they got married and they ultimately, he was in the garment business and he ultimately got offered a job or an opportunity in Dallas, Texas. And so they decided to move to Dallas from New York City. And they got into the garment business. And he ultimately started his own business in partnership with another guy. And it was hard at first, but he, he did very well. He ended up living in the most prestigious part of Dallas called Highland Park. And he was a, a hobbyist in terms of filmmaking. He, he would take home movies and he was very good at it. And so on November 22nd, 1963, John Kennedy was there in Dallas. He was coming in a parade uh, with, of course, an open air car. And so uh, Zabruder decided to go back home and get his camera and went out to Dealey Plaza and was going to film the president, who he, deep, he deeply admired. And he gets up on a pedestal there in, in, um, near the, what's called the Grassy Knoll. And he begins to film this, the, the motorcade, and it's making the turn and coming down Elm Street. And lo and behold, the shots ring out. And the camera jars a little bit, but to his credit, he just kept filming the whole way. And so when the, when the shot hits Kennedy in the head, um, it's all captured on film. He, he's got the whole thing. I mean, this, this is probably the most famous home movie in history. So immediately after that, he goes back to his office. Um, two policemen with shotguns came over and demanded the film. Uh, they, they were confiscating a lot of people's film there in Dealey Plaza, but, but the canny um, Zabruder had locked it in a safe and said, well, no, it's my safe and I'll only share it with the secret service. And so a secret service agent came by uh, Zabruder went with him that they, they went over to the local Kodak uh, business and got the film developed, went to another place, got it copied, uh, came back to, to Kodak and had the film slit down the middle. It was an, it was an eight millimeter uh, 
camera. But the but the film was what's called a double eight wide um, film. It's 16 millimeters. And what you would do is you'd film on one side, take out the spool as soon as it got completed and put in the other side. And then after it got developed, you'd slit it down the middle and then you'd connect the, the two ends end to end, the two pieces end to end, and you'd have one long eight millimeter film. Uh, so he did all this. He was very careful. He got three copies made. He made sure that nobody made any unauthorized copies. Uh, he told an FBI agent that he's going to get as much money as he could from this film and more power to him because that's exactly what he did. Uh, Life magazine contacts him that evening on Friday evening. They set up a meeting for Saturday morning. They strike a deal where he's going to get $50,000, which doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but it was equivalent of about three or four hundred thousand dollars back there. And then um, so he gives them the original film. Their official story for years had been that it went to Life magazine's printing operation in Chicago. Uh, later, and that's part of my book, we, we discovered that that really that official narrative was false. Um, but then three days later, Life magazine or actually, yeah, on Sunday, Life Magazine contacts Zabruder again and says, oh, they had only bought the print rights. I should point that out. Zabruder, they contact Zabruder again and say, we've decided we want more than the print rights. We want it all. We, we want the, the motion picture rights. We want all rights to this, to this film, which is really strange because Life Magazine had no way of showing it as a film. Only television had that. And, and that was Zabruder's aim was on Monday. He had all these meetings set up with television networks and so forth to let them have a bidding war on the film. Uh, but then Life Magazine comes up and says, we want the motion picture rights too. So Zabruder, who had a lot of respect for Life Magazine, oh, and they tripled the amount. <laughs> it was like, it was an offer he couldn't refuse. It was now it was 150,000. They were offering 100,000 more for a film that as it turned out, they had no intentions of, of showing their sole intention was to suppress the film. And they, they did, they locked it in their safe and said, nobody's ever going to see this film. Right. But he, he was led to believe that they were going to um, distribute it and show it. So he didn't understand their real motive, but he was right there in the Dow tech building, which is right on that corner. Right. of Elm. Yeah. So he was, his business was not far from the scene of the crime. Oh, it was right down the street. It was right down the street. And uh, and you're right that in the contract, he was going to get a percentage of the profits. After they recouped their 150, he would get a percentage of the take on motion picture rights that they would be lending out. And that's in the contract. So he was clearly led, led to believe they were going to do that. But once they got possession of the film, they said, nope, we're going to lock it up and nobody's ever going to see it. And nobody did see it till, till 1975. I mean, there were some bootleg copies that started to circulate, but the general public did not see this film till 1975. And that was when Geraldo, threatened with a lawsuit, said to heck with it. We've got a bootleg copy. We're going to show it on national television. And he did. And so there were three original copies, though, at the beginning, is my understanding, right? That's so right. He, and Zapruder watched it 15 times. So he knew what was in there. He passed away seven years later, 1970. But he knew the real, like, there's a dispute of how authentic some of these copies are, right? 
Well, it, there's a dispute as to how authentic the copies are and equally important, the authenticity of the original film. And that's the theme of my book, An Encounter with Evil, that I happened to read a book called 26 Seconds, a personal history of the Zabruder film by his granddaughter, Alexandra Zabruder. And when I got this book, I thought, oh, this will be an interesting account. I mean, I've done a lot of research about the Kennedy assassination. I, of course, knew about the Zabruder film. And I thought, well, this will just be an interesting account of how the family dealt with this, this film. Uh, well, as I started reading this book, I was stunned because it was much more than that, that she describes a taboo in the family. I mean, she doesn't use the word taboo. In fact, she denies there was a taboo, but it's clearly a taboo. She said that the culture of the family was that you could not discuss this film. Everybody was just prohibited from discussing it, that, that everybody just understood you don't bring this film up. And not only when he was alive, he, as you point out, he died in 1970, but after he, he died for the next 30, 40 years until she decided to write this book, nobody discussed this film in the family. It was the unwritten rule. And so she decided to break this taboo. And she says, I'm going to write this book. And she acknowledges this is a, took a lot of courage. And it did, because when you're dealing with a family taboo, oftentimes you're dealing with a very dark secret. And uh, she said, I didn't know what I was going to find. I was scared. I knew I was going to get pushback from my family, but I decided to do it anyway, which I admired her for. But then she ends up coming up with the two most ludicrous excuses as to what was going on with this film. Why the, the reason for this taboo, she says, well, my grandfather was terribly grief stricken that he just was so sad over this, this death that he had witnessed and filmed that people just, the family just couldn't talk about it. And then the second thing that he was really guilt ridden over the amount of money he made off it. And therefore they couldn't talk about it. Well, I'm reading this, William, and I'm saying, this is ridiculous. I mean, this is a guy that, that was trying to make as much money off the film as possible. If he was really so guilt ridden over the money, he could have waived it. Life magazine was paying him $25,000 a year for the 150000 He could have written them and said, I'm too guilt-ridden. Please uh, stop this. And there's a lot of people who were grief-stricken over the assassination, but they didn't have family taboos. So I decided to make it my quest, you know, I have a legal background, to figure out what really was going on here. And I did that. that that's the theme of my book, that there was a dark secret, that she was right to be scared that there was going to be a dark secret. And that dark secret is that Abraham Zabruder knew that his film had been altered. And for decades, 30 years or so, the official story was that the film had gone to Chicago, to the printing press there for Life magazine. Nobody could prove how it would have gotten altered. I mean, to alter a film, you're talking about really specialized equipment, specialized people, professional people. You're talking about Hollywood. They're the only ones that could do this. And yet there was no proof ever that the film was shipped to Hollywood or that Hollywood experts came to Chicago. So there it stood. But yet there were still people convinced, and we can delve into that. It's, I certainly delve into the book, why, what they needed to do to alter the film. But finally, right. yeah, go ahead. Well, well, the important thing was is that the story... Uh, really came together that Oswald was the lone shooter 
and that had to be maintained, right? By, Absolutely. Right. So that's really the, the crucial element of everything, really. If you go into you go into detail about the autopsy in the book, but uh, the film was very important component to make sure that the Oswald alone narrative was maintained. Right. That was the official story. A lone nut who, with no apparent motive, um, except he was a little man trying to become a big man by killing a big man, even though he denies doing it. So there's an inconsistency there. And he, and he claims he's been set up. He calls himself a patsy. But everything was designed to show that the shots came in from the rear, uh, from Kennedy's rear, where Oswald was situated. Well, immediately after the president was declared dead, two treating physicians at Parkland Hospital had a press conference. And they said, the president's been hit in the front through the neck, right, near the Adam's apple. And he's got a big exit wound in the back of his head. Well, they didn't say exit wound, but a big exit size wound in the back of his head. Well, that obviously is contrary to the official story. And so all the other physicians confirmed that there was this big hole in the back of Kennedy's head, denoting a shot from the front. Because when a bullet enters the person's head, it enters with a little tiny bullet size but it pushes mass in front of it and it blows out the rear. And you can well, still see that video. You mentioned this video from, it's from the uh, documentary, The Men Who Killed Kennedy. It's McClelland or one of these guys. Dr. Robert McClelland. Yeah, you can see him like the, the video or film of him pointing to his head where Kennedy got shot. So it's yeah. a big problem. Yeah. Dr. Robert McClelland is one of the most reputable physicians in Dallas or was. He passed away a few years ago. Um, he renowned a surgeon at Southwestern Medical Center, which is a fantastic medical center in, in Dallas. The guy's reputation turned out to be you know, unbelievably fantastic. He was in his 30s when he was there, but he consistently his entire life said, when the president came in, I went to the head of the gurney. I went to where his head was and I saw this massive exercise wound. And he, in every interview, he points it right back here. And he says, I asked the other treating physicians who were doing a tracheotomy, have y'all seen this? And they said, no, we just got in here right before you did. And he says, well, you need to come and see this. And they all went and they saw it. And they, the reason that was important is because everybody knew he was dead at that point. Nobody can survive a wound like that. And so there's no point you know, in making a big tracheotomy and trying to help the guy breathe when you know he's a dead man. And then you got nurses that confirmed the exit wound. You've got... Um, Secret Service agent, Clint Hill. You got two FBI agents. A lot of people confirmed this massive hole. The problem is that the autopsy photographs show the back of the head to be intact. No, no hole. So either those people are lying or they're mistaken, or you got fraud in the, in the photographs. Right, well, that's an important theme, right? So you see fraud in Zapruder, fraud in the autopsy photographs, fraud on the picture of Oswald as well. So it's exactly. a lot of manipulation of film and photos. And you see, and it's necessary. The, the fraud becomes necessary because the film shows the back of the president's head to be intact as well. So if the photographs are fraudulent, then that necessarily means that the film's got to be fraudulent. And that's how the, the assassination researchers, um, especially a guy named Doug Horn, who really inspired me to write these books, 
Um, he worked for the Assassination Records Review Board, which is the official agency that was charged with enforcing the JFK Records Act that came out right after Oliver Stone's m- movie, and it mandated the release of all records, including the autopsy records. So that's what caused people to be convinced that the film had to be altered, even though they couldn't prove how it was done. Uh, if the photograph's fraudulent, then the, the film's got to be fraudulent. And so people kept looking. People like Horn kept looking and looking and looking. And finally, that evidence turned up some 30 years after the assassination. The CIA had been able to keep it secret three decades. Let me also mention another uh, important witness at the uh, Assassination Records Review Board, which, which had, was in, in uh, existence in the 1990s. They discovered a woman named Sandra Spencer who worked in the um, official uh, government Navy photography lab in Washington. She worked closely with the White House developing photographs. Her reputation is absolutely impeccable. She was summoned to testify before the Assassination Records Review Board, and she delivered a remarkable story. She had been sworn to secrecy. It was all classified. She hadn't talked for 30 years. they ask her, they show her the photographs of the back of President Kennedy's head, the official autopsy photographs, where the back of the head is intact. And she says, no, sir, on the weekend of the assassination, I was asked to develop the official photographs, and I did develop them. And I can tell you, that photograph is not what I developed. The photograph I developed showed a massive exercise wound in the back of the president's head. And she was in like Bethesda too, right? So she wasn't even in Texas, or was she in Texas? No, no, she she wasn't in, at Bethesda. She was in in Washington at the at oh, the um, Navy's White House uh, photography lab there. Okay, uh, that dealt with the lab. So Bethesda, you got Bethesda, Maryland, where the autopsy took place. They brought the autopsy film to her at this top secret facility, or at least not, wasn't a top secret facility. It was a Navy uh, photography lab, but swore her to secrecy by telling her that this was a highly classified operation. Interesting. And it was, and there was all kinds of things with the autopsy or the the movement of the body too. There were issues with Kennedy's body so that they could fake it or do something strange, right? Like you said, there was a 90 minute differential between stated times and actual times, right? Yeah, that, I outline that very carefully in my book, The Kennedy Autopsy, and I go into it also in this book, An Encounter with Evil, that the ARRB also discovered the existence of a, a Marine, former Marine sergeant named Roger Boygen. And they contacted him and said, you know, what do you know about the autopsy that night at, at Bethesda National Naval Medical Center? And he says, well, I was in charge of the Marine detail for security. You know, he, he made sure unauthorized people didn't get in. And he says that at 6.35 p.m., um, the president's body was brought into the morgue. Well, there, there was a big problem with that. The official time that everybody agrees with that the body was brought in was at 8 p.m. Here you've got a Marine sergeant saying, well, no, the body was brought in at 6.35 p.m., And then you also had Navy personnel that were carrying the body in at 6.35 p.m. They verified this story. They said, yeah, we carried the president's body in in a cheap shipping casket. 
Well, in Dallas, he had been placed in a very expensive, the most expensive, ornate, heavy casket that you could find. Not a shipping casket, like the kind that they ship people, you know, in planes or trains or whatever. So they bring the president's body in at 6.35 p.m. They have this complicated rigmarole where they, they do some shenanigans inside the, the morgue between 6.35 and 8 p.m. They get the body back into the official Dallas casket so that they can then carry it in at 8 p.m. and act like nothing's happened. And this is, this is one of the remarkable achievements of the ARRB because here's a Marine... Oh, by the way, the Marine sergeant says, I kept a copy of my report. And they said, what? He says, yeah, I've got an onion skin copy of my report from November 20-something, 1963. It was a few days after the, uh, the autopsy. So they said, well, can we have it? He goes, yeah. He gives them a copy of his report. And sure enough, there it is. Body brought in at 6.35 p.m. There's also the ARRB also verified from the uh, Gawler's Funeral Home, which was the most prestigious funeral home in, in Washington. They found a memo there saying, confirming that president's body brought in a shipping casket. At, at, I think they mentioned the time. I'm not sure at 6.35 p.m. So you've got all this, this evidence establishing this. And, but here's the clincher, William, that the, one of the autopsy pathologists, Pierre Fink, Army guy, the other two were Navy personnel, he's testifying in a trial in New Orleans in 1979 of Clay Shaw. Uh, this is where Jim Garrison, the district attorney of, uh, in New Orleans, was charging that this was actually a regime change operation. This was the inspiration for uh, Oliver Stone's movie. Fink is called to testify in that trial. And he testifies under oath, obviously inadvertently, it's a massive slip up, that at 8 p.m. he got a telephone call from one of the other pathologists, the one in charge, uh, James Humes, asking him to come over and participate in the autopsy. Fink says that during that conversation, Humes says to him, we already have x-rays of the president's head. Well, this is at 8 p.m. when the phone call's made. This is the official time when the president's body is being brought into the morgue, supposedly for the first time. There is no possibility, if that's really the case, there's no possibility that they could have had x-rays. Uh, they, they took no x-rays in Dallas. So Fink inadvertently confirmed under oath in that trial that the body was brought in early because that's the only way they could have had these early x-rays. Or tamper with the, with the evidence, right? I mean, to make it look like there was a single shooter. Exactly. That was the purpose of bringing the body in early, to do body alteration in order to make it look like all the shots had come from the rear. And I detail in my book um, what exactly they did. We don't need to go into that, but um, the, the, the best, most authoritative book on this, and really the book that inspired me, is Doug Horn's book, Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. Uh, it is a five-volume book. To me, it's the watershed book in the, in the research community. It, Horn is the one assassination researcher who has put all of the available pieces of this puzzle together. And anybody that makes their way through all five volumes, I will guarantee you that it's virtually impossible not to reach the conclusion that this was a fraudulent autopsy. And once you make that conclusion, you see, William, why is that important that this was a fraudulent autopsy? Because once you reach that conclusion, it's over. It, it, you have now concluded 
that the national security establishment assassinated Kennedy because there is no innocent explanation for a fraudulent autopsy. Nobody has ever come up with one. Nobody can come up with one. It's definite conclusive proof that there was criminal culpability in this assassination. Because again, there's no innocent explanation for a fraudulent autopsy. Right. It's just incredible that they, they were just uh, tampering with all the evidence they could get their hands on, if not just creating evidence. You know, things showed up at uh, uh, the residence where Oswald's wife was, you know, implicating him and all this other crazy stuff. They were just juicing the whole thing. And that included the autopsy and the, uh, the Subruder film, right? Yeah. And it's worth mentioning how the autopsy gets established. I mean, that's what I go into in detail in, in uh, Kennedy Autopsy 2 and Johnson's role in this, is that when the president's declared dead, it, and it, this is one of the most remarkable episodes in this whole controversy. It, it's just shocking. Uh, when the president's declared dead, Texas law provided that an autopsy had to be conducted by the Dallas County Medical Examiner, a guy named Earl Rose. Very competent guy. He ended up uh, conducting the autopsy on Oswald, um, a renowned uh, uh, medical examiner. So he announces, declares he's going to do this autopsy. Immediately, a team of Secret Service agents goes into action, it was headed by a guy named Roy Kellerman, who, interestingly enough, was the in the passenger seat when Kennedy was shot, never once made any attempt after the first shot, which was not fatal, the first shot was not fatal, um, never made any attempt to crawl over the seat and cover the president he, as he was supposed to. All he did was turn around to look at the president until the second shot hit him in the head. Kellerman um, is at, at Parkland Hospital, and he, carrying a submachine gun, says, you're not going to conduct an autopsy. So he tells the Rose, we're taking this body back with us to Washington. And Rose stood his ground and said, you're not leaving here. And he stood in front of the the casket that they were trying to wheel out, the team of Secret Service agents pull their, their coat pockets back. They brandish their guns. One of one big one takes Rose and physically picks him up and puts him up against a wall and wags his finger in his head, saying, you know, essentially saying, no, no, no. And they forced their way out of there with the body. Um, they, they said they were operating under orders. So they take it to Parkland Hospital where Lyndon Johnson's waiting for it. And he was already having seats taken out of Air Force One to make room for it, which is proof that he's the guy that issued the order. He knew that this body was coming in violation of Texas state law. Johnson takes the body back to um, Maryland. They have plenty of pathologists in Maryland, plenty of, of, of medical examiners, very competent people, both in Washington and in Maryland. Instead, he hands the body over to the military. And the military is the one that ends up conducting this fraudulent autopsy. Right. So the military like, knows this stuff. And you said mentioned some of these characters in the military. I, I think it was LeMay there. I remember in JFK they had a high-ranking military guy sitting at the autopsy, there's like a scene of some guy smoking a cigar. Wasn't there like a high-level military guy at the autopsy? Was that ever confirmed? Well, there was a lot of high military people there. We, we don't really know all the personnel that were there. Uh, what we do know is that, um, is that when, when uh, Pierre Fink, and Pierre Fink testified to this, was doing a dissection of the throat wound, somebody came over to him and said, stop that. Don't touch it. 
And he, he testified this in New Orleans. And when the prosecutor asked him, who was that that ordered you to do that? He said, oh, I don't remember. Right. And, Conveniently. Uh, I don't remember. Well, yeah, he was very scared. Um, but every indication is that LeMay was there, uh, that uh, LeMay was out somewhere in another state um, hunt on a hunting trip or something like that. He immediately got in his plane, came to Washington. Um, he was a very powerful guy, obviously. He hated Kennedy. He hated Kennedy's guts. And every indication is that he's the guy that was sitting there, high-ranking officer, smoking this big cigar, uh, almost gloating it, uh, people say, uh, and that somebody came by and said, sir, you can't smoke in here. And that uh, LeMay just took a big suck on his cigar and blew smoke in the guy's face. Wow. And, but it uh, would be totally consistent with that guy's attitude. LeMay had been involved in fire bombings in Japan. He was a hard, wasn't he involved in Northwoods too? And then I think you wrote in your book, he said that the, resolution to the missile crisis was the greatest defeat in u.s history so he he was super ag aggressive would you agree with that oh no question about it that he he hated kennedy not only on a personal basis but the fact that he considered kennedy a traitor and a coward uh, that for one thing kennedy not providing the air support at the bay of pigs letting all those guys get killed or captured by castro's communist forces I mean, that was an unforgivable sin, not only in the eyes of the CIA, but also in LeMay and many members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This Lemnitzer, was cowardice. Yeah, yeah. Lemnitzer. This was cowardice in the face of the communist enemy. And then the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, you know, we're often told that it was the, the Russians that blinked, the Soviets that blinked. That's bull. It was Kennedy who blinked. And, and it was a good thing he did that he sat there and said, what is it that's motivating them to do that? He had this unique ability to put himself in the shoes of his enemy or his opponent. And he figured out that the reason they put these nuclear missiles there was they were trying to protect Cuba from being invaded again by the Pentagon and the CIA, who clearly were pressuring Kennedy to do it. That's what Operation Northwoods, this fraudulent false, false flag operation was all about. Kennedy said no, and he agrees with the Soviets. He says, I promise you, there will not be another invasion of Cuba if you'll just take your missiles home. And the, the Soviets said, done. I mean, that was, the, that was the sole reason they had the missiles in the first place. And then at the last minute, the Soviets tell Kennedy, hey, we also want you to remove your missiles out of Turkey that are pointed at us. And Kennedy said, done. Just give me thir uh, six months to do it secretly so it doesn't hurt me politically. <laughs> And they trusted him. And sure enough, six months later, Kennedy complied with it. But the, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, LeMay, thought this was the, LeMay called it the greatest defeat in U.S. history. Kennedy was very proud of what he'd accomplished. And if he hadn't accomplished this, if he had done what the military and the CIA wanted him to do, we wouldn't be standing here, sitting here having this interview. There would have been all-out nuclear war if he'd attacked Cuba. Uh, they had their nuclear missiles armed and ready to go. So Kennedy saved the world from this all-out nuclear war, but they thought he was a coward, a traitor, and that he was leading America to defeat. And that was why they had to take him out. Because It was like Dr. Strangelove. These guys were really that crazy because LeMay was like, we can win a full-scale nuclear war if we strike them first. Like That's how unhinged they were like talking about. Northwoods was crazy. Like It was really there. It was, I mean, Dr. Strangelove 
seems like a dark comedy, but then they were close to a kind of a real global war. The brink, they're right on the brink. So I they totally were, agree with you. They were recommending to Kennedy to initiate a first strike surprise sure. nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. They said, you know, we, we've got this nuclear superiority. Now's the time to hit them. There's going to be a war between Russia and the United States ultimately, and we might as well get it on now. And Kennedy said, well, how many Americans will be killed in this war? And they said, well, only 70 million, but there'll be another, you know, 50 million or 60 million still alive. We will wipe all of the Russians out because we'll strike first, knocking out a lot of their capability. So we will win. That was her attitude. Kennedy left that meeting and he remarks to somebody, an aide or somebody, indignantly, and we call ourselves the human race. Right. So Kennedy's, Kennedy's worldview was totally opposite to the national security establishment. That's why they had to take him out. It was either going to be Kennedy's worldview, which he established in his peace speech at American University in June 10th. By this time, Kennedy realized that the CIA and the Pentagon were, were, were destroying America. I mean, there's, and their, their, their forever hostility toward Russia and the Soviet Union. So in his peace speech, he ambushed the heck out of them. He said, uh, we're no longer going to have a Cold War. He, he didn't use that term, Cold War, but he said, we're going to have peaceful and mutual cooperation with the Soviet Union. We have different ideologies, but we're going to get along from here on out. And he, he later called for a joint trip to the moon which meant sharing rocket technology with the Reds. Uh, this is why they it was finally June 10th, decided. 1963. You can almost see this lead up of him doing things, getting the national security state more incensed and more rabid, like the June 10th speech, civil rights, uh, communicating with Khrushchev. I thought it was interesting in your book that Khrushchev had enough kind of uh, sensibility to appreciate that speech in America. I mean, we hear it, you can hear it online and you have a link to it. And I recommend people listen to it because he says some very interesting things about a monolithic conspiracy and stuff like that. But it is interesting that Khrushchev had that speech printed all the way throughout Russia and distributed so people could read it. Yeah, well, he had it broadcast as well. I mean, people could see it or listen to it. Um, it, it was a remarkable. It was the first time that it ever happened in, in Russia because Khrushchev was on the same wavelength. He realized how close the world had come to nuclear war. And so he and Kennedy were really negotiating an end to all of this Cold War nonsense, which Kennedy felt was a racket by this time. And, and they both uh, had experienced war. So both Khrushchev right. and Kennedy were actually in and saw war and people die and the real consequences of it. Yeah, and then Kennedy had an emissary. A lot of people don't know this. He had an emissary in, in Cuba and in Havana having lunch with Castro at the very moment he was assassinated because he was going to end that Cold War too. Yeah, that was a French guy too, right? What's his, what's his name? Yeah, Jean Daniel, I think was his Jean name. Jean Daniel, good runner. Yeah. Really fascinating. Yeah, so there was a lot going on, a lead up to it. That you talk about the the war against the national security state and what the national security state was really doing. Like they were assassinating people all over the place. All of these names: Arbenz, Mossadegh, Lumumba. Who else is on that list? Yeah, they didn't assassinate all of them. Like they let Mossadegh live, and 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 Arbenz got out before they assassinated him. But clearly, he was on their assassination list. They tried to assassinate Castro. They did assassinate assassinate Lumumba. Ten years afterward, they participated and supported and really initiated, incited 
the coup in Chile that ended up leaving Salvador Allende, the democratically elected president there, dead. Uh, so they had no reservations about assassinating anyone who they considered was a threat to national security. That's what they're that's what they feel their job is to protect national security. And if that means taking out a foreign official, so be it. If it means taking out a an American official who they consider is a threat to national security, they're going to do it. That's their job. It's amazing, like how much was involved in that and how much work they had to do to really cover it up. And actually, the Zapruder film. Do you think that the the actual real Zapruder film exists somewhere in some safe or uh, will anybody ever see that? That's a fascinating question. Um, there's been rumors over the decades that that it exists and that people have seen it, but my hunch is that they destroyed it immediately. Uh, they yeah. couldn't afford to have somebody uncover it down the road. I mean, they might have kept it in existence a while to you know, kind of gloat and see what really happened, but my hunch is they had to destroy it. They couldn't take that kind of chance. And and we, we really haven't gone into what they did to alter this film, but you know, I would invite people to read my book. It's an absolutely fascinating story. And it didn't come out until about 30 years later. And the CIA still won't talk about it. We don't know whether there's any records relating. What we do know is they took control over the Zabruder film. It did not go to Chicago after all. It got diverted on a flight to, to Washington and went to the CIA's uh, National Photographic Interpretation Center. And uh, they've never released any records relating to that encounter. And the, the film was later take, uh, taken to the CIA's top secret facility at Kodak headquarters in Rochester, New York. That's, that's where they altered it. And there's, in the records that have been released, there's never any record of their control over the Zabruder film. And there's no question that they took control over the film. That, that we got CIA agents testifying to that or attesting to it. And uh, the question is, is, are there any records in these records that are still yet to be released that are going to come due December 15th of this year. Um, my hunch is there's not because this, this is a part of an operation they would have suppressed and kept secret come hell or high water. And, right. But that in itself is incriminating because if anything, if there's anything relating to the assassination, it's the Zabruder film. So there should be records of the Zabruder film arriving at the nitpick headquarters there in, uh, in Washington and taken to Rochester, logging it in, what personnel dealt with it. My hunch is that there is none of that. Yeah, I would agree. It's too hot. It would just reveal everything and show the real. I mean, they, I think really it was a shooting gallery. Like there were probably 10 shots at Kennedy. Some of them hit, some didn't, but they wouldn't want to receive uh, have that exposed to the American people. And I think that's well, what a lot, some of these guys who are probably weren't in the assassination, but they said if the truth came out, it would just be too devastating if people knew the actual real facts that would change the political landscape. Well, I think so. I mean, I, I think that, I think most people realize that, that this was a regime change operation, but it's, it's one of these things where you just don't want to acknowledge it because it's so deep and profound. It changed the entire course of this country. I mean, you, people sometimes ask me, why do you keep dealing with this? What's the relevance? It happened 60 years ago. Look where we are. We're, we're, we're now very close to nuclear war in Ukraine. Uh, we've got a massive military establishment. The CIA and the Pentagon, the NSA are still in existence. 
Uh, you got the whole war on terrorism business after the war on, on, uh, on the Cold War ended. Uh, you've got everything that would have not been in existence had Kennedy prevailed. Had Kennedy continued living, the Cold War would have been over back in the 60s. There would have been no need to keep the CIA in existence because the whole justification for the national security establishment was the Cold War. No Cold War. You don't need these people. Uh, you wouldn't have had the 9-11 because you wouldn't have, Kennedy would have never permitted foreign interventionism in the Middle East to, to produce the terrorist blowback. The probability, well, it's, it's a virtual certainty Kennedy would have won the 64 election against Goldwater. And then in 68, it's a virtual certainty that Bobby Kennedy would have, would have run for president and probably have won. So this assassination is a watershed event in this country, and we have to come to terms with it. I mean, look where we are in terms of dysfunctionality, random killings on a practically a daily basis, mass killings, um, you know, big drug war and uh, out of control federal spending and debt, inflation. Uh, this is not a real joyful, harmonious society. And we need, to yeah. we need to confront this, William, in order to get this country on the right track. Totally agree with you. They just okayed like an eight hundred and eighty-eight billion dollar Department of Defense budget for next year. It's off the charts. It's all part of this whole thing where the wars justify the growth of the national security state to the detriment of all the citizens and gives power to people with not really good uh, motivations or intentions. Like a lot of these guys who were around Kennedy and killed him were just—I mean, it led to the war uh, extension of Vietnam. People here were destroyed by it, but I mean, think about being in Vietnam where 2 million people died and, you know, massive bombings in Southeast Asia and everything. It just led to just such a disaster. And oh, 58,000 of my generation were killed. And um, Kennedy was ordering the pullout. As part of this whole change in mindset Kennedy had, he was ordering a pullout. He, he said, pull out a thousand now, and I'm going to pull out the rest of them after the election. Uh because politically it was hard to order a full pullout before the election, you know, with all the anti-communist crusading and so, so forth. There would not have been a Vietnam War had Kennedy lived. It's just right. a whole thing's just a disaster. It's really a disaster. Yeah, and LBJ, what a character. I mean, just like the people. <laughs> LBJ, it's interesting because Life Magazine's a really important or very important element in the story. And there's just like this crux of events where they're going to report about what a corrupt guy LBJ was at the same time Kennedy gets killed. So it's this this change, this radical change, 90, you know, 180 degree change from LBJ almost getting indicted and kicked out of office or whatever in 63 to the exact opposite of that. Where Kennedy dies, LBJ comes into power and is able to cover everything up. It's really incredible. Yeah, I mean, Johnson was as crooked as a dog's hind leg. I mean, we, we all know that. And, and your, your point about Life Magazine is fascinating because they had the story about his corruption, Billy Saul Estes and other Bobby Baker and so forth. They had that story already printed in the Life Magazine's um, issue of November 29th, which was a week after the assassination. At the last second, they pulled this story out to put photographs from the Zabruder film in there. But they never reprinted that article. And the reason was, I surmise, I don't know what the real reason was, but I suspect they thought, well, 
this is the president. He's now the president and we've, we've got to recover as a nation. We have to heal our wounds from this assassination. So let's give him a buy on this corruption that he was clearly going to get indicted for, which of course provides motive. Uh, and there's, there's also strong indications that it was Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general, who was providing the evidence to, to Life magazine about Johnson's corruption because he hated Johnson and he wanted him taken off the ticket for the 64 campaign. And so Johnson had plenty of motive to participate in this assassination uh, because if Kennedy lives, Johnson goes to the penitentiary. Uh, that's powerful right. motive. Right. I mean, it's really incredible, like an incredible nexus point of American, really world history right there, November 22nd, 1963. And this book uh, goes into detail. And you have a lot of background, too, leading up to it. It's very important to see Zapruder in context. Um, Jacob, do you have time to take a few questions? Absolutely. Okay, great. M. Allen asks, uh, back into the left, is that true? That's a fascinating point. Okay, so that what, what he's referring to is that if you see the Zapruder film, the most remarkable, shocking part of the Zapruder film is the back into the left movement when he gets shot in the head and he just bounces back against the seat, which everybody in, you know, interprets that of course, as a shot from the front. Um, and this was in, in Oliver Stone's movie, JFK very prominently when Kevin Costner is giving his jury summation, he says back into the left, back into the left to show that this was not just a lone shooter that from, firing from the rear. Well, what's interesting is that, the people that saw the Zabruder film, the original Zabruder film, before it was altered, never talked about this. I mean, this is the most prominent feature of the film, and yet nobody talked about that feature. And my hunch is that what happened was that in the, in the alteration of the film, which they did with a, with a really high-quality um, super camera up at Rochester, that one of the, the, the CIA officials that, that is probably the greatest photography expert in history, a guy named Dino Brugioni. You can, you can Google him and see his Wikipedia page. I mean, the guy's incredible. He said that in Rochester, they could do anything. In other words, they could do everything that could be done in Hollywood at Rochester. And nobody knew. It was, a, it, was a, it was an operation called Hawkeye Works, top secret operation nobody knew about. And um, so they take it there and, and um, they uh, – that's where they alter it and then bring it back to, to, to Washington. My hunch is that when they deleted these frames, deleting in crucial parts of it, and I go that into my book, what parts they wanted to delete, it compressed the time so that this back into the back, back into the left movement, it was there in the original film, but not in a prominent way. But by removing the frames, it compresses it so that it becomes the, the biggest, most important part of the, of the altered film. And that's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And David asked kind of a question I asked too, which is, does the original footage exist anywhere? Maybe it is. Yeah. Maybe one of these guys at the top of the conspiracy has a copy of it. I don't know. Um, M. Allen also asked again, have you discovered any links between Bush as CIA director and I've heard he knew Lee Harvey Oswald. Have you ever heard that? I've never heard that. Uh, no. But wasn't Bush on site? Wasn't he like 10 miles away at, at like some city outside of Dallas on that day? I thought he was. Yeah. I thought he lied about it. Yeah, he was outside Dallas that day. I think he may have been in Dallas before then. Um, 
he made a strange phone call. I forget the exact terms of the phone call, um, but it was un- it was an unusual message that he delivered. I, I forget what it is. Wasn't it to Hoover or something? Like I'm not in Dallas or something. Like I, he was deliberately trying to obfuscate where he was. I I thought there is some record of him. Maybe it's in family. No, there, there is some record of it, and, and what he said. I just don't recall what it is. Um, I, I know that there's an assassination researcher that has written a book. Um, oh gosh, I forget the name of it. Um, that delves into where Bush was and so forth. But um, I don't put much stock in it. Um, gotcha. you, you just don't. I mean, the thing is, we have to deal with evidence. Is it possible? Sure, but. Um, I don't think there's any evidence incriminating Bush in the assassination. There is I've evidence, that, circumstantial yeah. evidence that Johnson was certainly involved, but I don't think Bush. There was some, somebody says that he's standing in front of the school book depository. There's a picture. Who, Bush? Who looks, yeah, who looks like him. It's online. Let me yeah. see if I can find it. I'm Sassy skeptic. Cat, yeah. Sassy I'm Cat skeptic. asks, I thought I read somewhere that Johnson met the night before with a few powerful men for the assassination. Is that true? Thank you. Okay, the, the Johnson's mistress uh, states that they had a huge party the night before and that where all the bigwigs were there, uh, Dulles and Hoover, I, I forget, maybe, maybe not Dulles, I don't know, that there were a lot of bigwigs there and that Johnson was there. Uh, some assassination researchers have come up with evidence that said that party never took place. I don't know what the real truth is, whether they did have that party or they didn't have the party. It could go either way. There was, I mean, I thought that wasn't there wasn't Johnson hanging out with some of these rich guys. It was a kind of the Murchison brothers. Like he kind of was, he knew the oil money in Texas. Isn't that true? Oh yeah. No, they, they were all tied in together. I mean, uh, Johnson, Johnson was a major Texas politician, but, but there was two factions fighting it out in Texas. There was a the conservative, everybody was a Democrat and, in Texas at that time, but there were the conservative Democrats and the liberal Democrats. And I just don't know where Johnson's alliances were uh, that, you know, he, he was friends, I think with both sides, but I, I just don't know where the Merkinsons fit in the, into this whole story with respect to Johnson, their relationship with Johnson um, or uh, Ralph Yarbrough, who was one of the big liberal leader in Texas and John Conley, who was the, big conservative leader, the governor of Texas. So I, I'm not really expert enough to, to tell you, answer that question. Gotcha. And this is supposedly him at the far left. If you can see on here, he's leaning over. It looks kind of like him. I don't think it's him, but somebody says that's Bush. Yeah. But, I'm skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm skeptical too. Anyway, um, we're at about the 55 minute. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap this up? Really great conversation. Thanks for uh, being here. Uh, no, uh, well, thank you, and thanks for thanks for having me on. Thanks for your viewers. Um, I just would say that if people would like to learn more about uh, what we do at the Future of Freedom Foundation, this isn't all we do. We're a, a, a libertarian organization. We advance the principal case for the libertarian philosophy. This is just one part, but we've been doing this for 33 years at fff.org. We've got a daily FFF daily, which uh, is email. We, we pride ourselves thinking that it's the best libertarian commentary page on the internet on a daily basis. We got a monthly journal. We got a, we got conferences and so forth. Uh, but this is, this is my passion. I mean, I, I, uh, 
I love this subject because I think it's so critically important. I used to think that the uh, 1930s was my most uh, interesting period to study, the, the New Deal and so forth. But that's been overtaken by this Cold War era because it, it is such a critical uh, change in, in the direction of America, the founding principles of America when we became a national security state. So I would invite people to read these books. And, and if, if you really want the, the best book to read, if you're, if you're just new to this subject, take a look at JFK, The Unspeakable, Why Kennedy Was Assassinated and Why It Matters by um, uh, Douglas. Doug, James Douglas. And the, the second greatest book is Doug Horn's book, um, Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. That's a tough read. I mean, it's not an easy read, uh, but to me, that's the watershed book. That's what inspired me to do my work in here. And I would invite people to, to read my books, especially if you only read two, read Regime Change and An Encounter with Evil. And I think people will greatly enjoy it. Thank you again. A, yeah, thank you. I put a link to it. There's a Kindle and paperback version so people can get those and I will put a link to the FFF.org in the show notes so people can check it, that out. Again, the author's name is Jacob Hornberger and people can contact you through FFF.org. Is that correct? Exactly. And gotcha. they can email me directly at jhornberger at FFF.org. Excellent. And again, the title of the book we discussed is An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zapruder story and the author again, Jacob Hornberger, published March 2022. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, William. All right, take care. Stay there. Stay there.